If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 2. Before Mother's Day, we were looking at a couple of, or looking to make our way through uh, these letters to the churches, and in which we're going to look at ourselves, look at our church. Uh, These are letters of warning and instruction from the Lord Jesus. They are letters of commendation, and they are letters of criticism in which we are to look closely at and apply to our life as a believer, as a church. And so I want us to look at the third letter, and that is to the church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse number 12. We'll read down through verse number 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have there you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have uh, uh, some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here we have the store, the letter to the church at Pergamum. And I want to talk to you this morning on a church that wandered into worldliness. A church that wandered into worldliness. In J.A. Hinty's novel, The Wolf of Saxon, taking place in the time of William the Conqueror in the 11th century, he tells the story of how Wolf the Saxon took a Welsh castle. How he did this was he watched the castle and waited and, and saw how that the, nearly the whole army would leave the castle at a certain time to go hunt and bring back food to the castle. And so when they had left to go out to gather fruit, food, that's when uh, Wolf the Saxon attacked the castle and took it over. And so they made their way inside of the castle and by the time the army came back, they found themselves locked out. And they found themselves attacking their own castle, a full frontal assault against their own castle. Well, Wolf the Saxon was concerned about this frontal attack, but he was most concerned of the likelihood of a secret attack. He knew that the most, most of these castles were built with secret passage entrances that sometimes had an opening as far away as a mile. So you can imagine, these guys on the outside, they knew how to get in these secret passageways into the castle. And sure enough, during the second night of the conflict, hostile Welsh forces 
removed a stone slab in the basement of the castle and following them and, 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 and made their way into the castle in single file, one by one by one in the darkness of night, not through this secret passageway. You see, sometimes the most dangerous attack does not come from a full frontal assault, but it comes from a backdoor entrance, a backdoor vulnerability, some place where we don't exactly suspect an attack. This was the case in the church of Pergamum. They were a church that was standing strong before a full frontal assault right at the mouth of hell. Did you catch that in the Scriptures? Pergamum was in the very place of the seat of Satan. That right there in, we could call it Hell City, right there in Pergamum, there is this church. And while they were steadily fending off Satan and fending off the enemy, they found that there was a corrupting influence that was making its way into the church through a back door. Jesus who is walking among the churches, he sees this subtle attack of Satan and he he dispatches John with a conscription, a letter of notification, letting the church of Pergamum know what's going on. You and I would do well for... Uh, to take heed to this letter. For worldliness is like a cancer that starts out small and subtle and grows undetected until it's too late. Every born-again member of this church and the church of the living God can immunize themselves from this worldly wandering by taking note of three descriptions that we see in this church. Here is an example of a church that is falling prey to worldliness. And so by watching them, we can immunize ourselves against that very attack. Number one, I want you to see in this description, first of all, their satanic conflict. Their satanic conflict. In verse number 12, it says... Or excuse me, verse number 13, he said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Go, and also later on in uh, 13, it says, where Satan dwells. There is a, a definite presence of that opposing power, that slanderer, Satan, making his uh, war against this church years ago. When, uh, before Carrie and I got married, just before we got married, I, I took a mission trip to the country of Portugal. I've never been overseas. This is the one and only time I've ever been on the, in Europe. And so when we were in Lisbon, we were working on a kind of a, a farm for uh, endangered kids. Kids are from backgrounds that have been in trouble, and they minister to kids there. But part of the, uh, the missionary journey was to go and see some sites. And we went to the, out to the coast there on the Atlantic Ocean near Lisbon, and there was a location there called the Boca de Inferno. Boca de Inferno. And what it was, I've got some pictures of it at home. What it was, was this enormous rock formation right there at the ocean. And so, as the waves of the ocean would come in, there was this jagged, large opening that had a small entrance in it. And as the waves would come in, 
the jagged rocks. I mean, it was like a furious storm inside that. It was like a bath. You know how, a, how a, a bathtub can get disturbed real easy and the waters are just flying all over the place. That's what this Boca de Inferno is like. It was a, a cauldron of, of, of shifting waters. And, and they called that the Boca de Inferno. What that means is, is the mouth of hell. Well, here, Pergamon could actually say that it was at the mouth of hell. For Jesus said that it was the very place in which Satan, Satan dwelt. You realize that Satan is not omnipresent? He's not God. He's not omniscient. Satan only knows what you tell him. <laughs> he, he may whisper in your ear. But he don't know what's in your head. He's not omniscient. He don't know what you're thinking unless you tell him. He's not omniscient and he's not omnipresent. You know, sometimes we may think, uh, oh man, I tell you, I'm under, I'm under satanic attack. The devil's all over me. Well, uh, I don't know that, that you're a priority on the devil's attack list. You may be being attacked by a demon, but the devil himself is somewhere on this planet in a single place. And at the time this letter was written for the church of Pergamum, they were there at the very seat, the very throne of the devil. And, they, and, and at that place, the waves of persecution raged high and hard against them. Notice, first of all, I want you to see this devilish fight. Again, he's talking particularly about Pergamum, how it's the seat and the place of Satan's residence. In John's day, Pergamum was sent out of the Roman, uh, was, was the seat of the Roman government. Remember we talked about Smyrna. It was like the vacation tropical spot that all the Romans liked to go to. But Pergamum was actually the very seat of the Roman a government in Asia. It was that royal city of Rome in the region of Asia. It was known for its religious uh, religions and idolatry. Rod Mattoon, a Bible commentator, said this, some of the chief deities that were worshipped there were Zeus, Aphrodite, and Ascapuleus. The Ascapuleus was the was the certain serpent god of medicine. The temple of Ascapuleus had a medical had different medical awards and was also the most famous medical school in the world. How many of you maybe? You've seen an ambulance, you know, you've seen the ambulance and, and on the side of the ambulance they have this star looking thing and inside that they have a what maybe look like a staff with, with maybe intertwining snakes on top of that. I bet you kind of always thought that that was Moses the brazen serpent in the wilderness, but no, it is not. It is actually in reference to this pagan god, Ascopulaeus, which which has its origins in ancient medicine in that time. Escapulaeus was called in that area the preserving or the preserver or the savior because he had supposedly had these healing powers. 
I, I guess you can see where the Christian church had a head-on collision with the idolatry of the world around them. You see, there's only one Savior, and He's the one that was raised from the dead, bodily, physically raised from the dead. Acts 4.12, Peter makes it plain to the Sanhedrin, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one Savior. But in Pergamum, there was an idolatrous league that said, Ascapuleus is the Savior. He's the person. He is the preserver. Jesus is saying, I know where you're living. I know that you're living in the devil's backyard. Now that was an awful place to live. It was an awful place to raise a child, no doubt. It was an awful place to try to start a church or to build a church. Right there in the gates of hell, we find, we find Pergamum. But you know, I find it interesting that Jesus never, not one time, told them to pack their bags and head out of town. He, he never said, it's time for you to get out of here. Right, this is just too bad. Uh, you guys are in too much danger. You're, you're just going to have to pack your bags and, and go somewhere else. No, they were in the lion's den, but God's purposes were being fulfilled by this little church. They were witnesses uh, to a, of Christ to a dark world. Then Jesus gives an example by naming Antipas. Antipas here in verse number 13. He says, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He is a faithful witness. That witness, uh, that is the the witness of a testimony that cost him his very life. It's interesting to note, some translations call that word witness martyr. And that's where we get the word martu. Martu in the Greek is martyr. It means we usually identify readily that martyr is a person that dies, but really that word means witness. And the indication is if you were a witness, if you were one that stood their ground to testify to the truth of what you've seen and heard, then you were going to die. That's where that word is associated with death. Here is Artipus. Uh, this, this faithful servant of God, and he has been, he's had his life taken by, by, because of his witness. It cost him his life. We may not feel the threat of our very lives in the bubble uh, of American religious freedom today, but to be sure, this is not the case around the world where so many Christians have and continue to lose their life for bearing truth of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And it does not require divine insight of a prophet to see where there is the threat coming that one day in the very near future that we may be finding ourselves in the same kind of jeopardy, life and limb. Have you seen the pictures of the pastor that was arrested and and taken into jail just these past weeks just for opening his church, the church doors locked. I'm telling you, there is an animosity toward the gospel of Jesus Christ that is growing day by day, and it is not hard to see where someday standing up for Jesus Christ may cost you life and limb. You see, they were living in this Pergamum, this devilish city, and it's a fight every day. A great missionary to China, C.T. Studd, who gave up a lucrative life as a professional cricket player to be a missionary in China, has the attitude of this church in Pergamum. 
He was no, he is quoted as saying, some want to live within the sound of a, of a church or a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That was Pergamum. These were the people that stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ right in the mouth of all of hell. They stood strong for Jesus Christ. That's where this church Pergamum was. God granted to be so, to be said, a faith community church. We, we may live in a place that is suffering, suffering more of cultural Christianity than conflicts with Christianity, but the same should be said today of us said to them. We will stand for the truth of the gospel. We will not back down in the face of Satan's intimidation. Notice not only a devilish fight, but we see a determined faith. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Although they lived at the mouth of hell, at the very throne of Satan, they would not be moved. I have found myself in these in these last six to eight months as we, we've begun to labor here and, and work in here, and I found myself going back time and time again to the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, taking the burden off of myself. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's the builder of this church. He's the one that will take the lampstand. He's the one that will breathe fire and life back into our church. Listen, He's the one that controls our destiny. Look back at verse number 12. He said to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write the words of him, notice this, who has the sharp two-edged sword. I find that interesting, given to this church. Oh, this little feeble church there, right at the throne of Satan. Jesus, from His first words, wants to remind Him, Hey, little church, I'm the one that has the sword. A sword is a picture of authority. Jesus is saying to this church that is enduring the blasts of Satan and persecution, never forget, I'm the one that is ultimately in charge. Jesus says, I know where you are. What a glorious thing to know. Jesus knows where we are. He knows that we may just be a handful here laboring and wanting to see Him work among this. But listen, He doesn't just gloss over us. He says the same words to us. Faith Community Church, I know where you are. I know where you are. Once again, what a comfort to know that no labor, that no position, no matter how small, goes unnoticed by Jesus. He knows where we serve Him. He knows what, where we are. Notice in 13, it says, You are holding fast to My name. Oh, listen. If there is anything for us to hold on that has some stability, it will not be a new marketing plan. It will not be uh, some kind of, of hopeful uh, 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 people to come in to, to do certain things and certain aspects to fill certain voids of ministry and helps. No, our hope is not based upon the strength of man. We are to hold fast to that name. 
That name, there is power in the name of Jesus. How are these folks weathering the rage of Satan right there at their doorstep? They're holding on to that name. That name above every name. That name to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That name that rises above all principalities and powers. That name that gleams brightly over the dusty annals of human history. That name which is graciously secures the destiny of all who believe upon Him. That name which justly holds those that despise His cross in eternal contempt. It is the name of Jesus sweetest name on mortal tongue sweetest carol ever sung Jesus blessed Jesus church of the living God hold tight to the name Jesus hold securely to that name here is a church with the flames of hell all around it the hot breath of Satan at its door and they cling fast to the name of Jesus they were in a satanic conflict so are we. Jump on my shoulder this morning while we're trying to worship. Does it so many times. Doing the best we can trying to praise Jesus. Satan jumps on that shoulder and says, what in the world do you think you're doing? You're a joke. This is ridiculous. You're a joke. Listen, He's the one in control and in charge. He blesses. He takes away blessing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let Him have His will among us. Let Him have His will. Let Him do what He wants among us. I'm not going to listen to His lies. A satanic conflict. Also, their subtle compromise. Oh, church, you were doing so good. Church, you're fending off. Man, you're doing such a great job. But as Jesus has done with other churches. He said, I have a few things against you. Pergamum was well contending with all the frontal assaults of Satan. When Satan hissed, they had the shield of faith. When Satan attacked, they struck out with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the name and person of Jesus Christ. But then Jesus whispers, I have a few things against thee. He's whispering to the church. You're doing good, church, but there's something we need to talk about. They're hearing the voice of Jesus. You know, I was listening to a message the other day. Good night. Spoke to my heart so clearly. They were drawing distinction between Saul and David. Saul and David. Saul was always a day late and a dollar short when it came to David. Saul couldn't hear the voice of God. He couldn't hear God speak. Anytime he came to a place, it was always where David was, not where David is. But David, David had the voice of God speaking to him. Hey, listen, I know it's hard when Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, you're doing a good job, but there's some things, there's some, there's some things that's got to be dealt with. There's some things that are not right that need to be squared away and straightened out. It may hurt and it may cause us pain to have to deal with the truths and there is some of the pain of conviction of the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, it is good that you hear the voice of God. (laughs) That God cares enough about you to say something to your heart. 
Oh, you're here, hearing the voice of God. Notice I want you to hear what Jesus had to say to him. First of all, we see the lessons of the doctrine of Balaam. He says, uh, but I have a few things against you. Verse 14, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Here we see Jesus is being very descriptive about what is taking place in this church. Now, how many of you know the story of Balaam and Balak in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter number uh, 23 and 24? The story is that, uh, that uh, ba- Balaam, uh, see, Balak wanted to, to bring to naught the children of Israel to defeat them, and so he hires this, he hires Balaam. And I'm telling you what, if you want to study an enigma in the Bible, Go look at Balaam. Balaam's a strange bird. Balaam could hear the voice of God. Conversate with God. Disobey God and go and try to go against God. Balaam was some sort of an apostate which could hear the voice of God to, uh, and, and try to gain tactics against the people of God, but at the same time prophesied the coming star of the rise of... You remember the star in Bethlehem? That comes from Balaam. It's a prophecy from Balaam uh, about the star that rose over, over, over Bethlehem. It's just a strange character, but King Balak hired Balaam to come out there and to place a curse on the people of God. Well, Balaam tried that three times, and every time he opened his mouth, God changed his words so that instead of a curse, it was a blessing upon them. But Balaam, Balak was beside himself. He paid this man a bunch of money to come out and curse the children of Israel. And so Balaam said, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I may not be able to pronounce a curse upon them, but we'll get them cursed by God. Watch this. We're going to take a backdoor approach. Balak, get your most beautiful prostitutes that you've got and start sending them in to the camp. Start setting them around the edges. Start sending them in among God's people. I know those men down there of the Israelites. I know that all they need is one of them Gentile uh, Gentile, uh, prostitutes to wink at them one time and the next thing you know they'll be hopping in the sack with them. They'll get themselves condemned by God. They'll get themselves cursed by God because of what they're doing. Because of a taking a backdoor approach. These heathen women come in in the, in the camp and the men did defile themselves and it led to idolatrous worship. You see, Balaam put a stumbling block before the people of God. Balaam looked like a prophet. He talked like a prophet. But what he did is put a stumbling block, an intentional stumbling block, in front of the people of God, and they started falling down like sheep, one after another, over that stumbling block. Jesus is saying, Pergamum, you got a Balaam among you. You've got somebody that's coming in the back way that looks like one of you, that talks like one of you, but in reality, he is putting a stumbling block and causing people to fall into idolatry. Here at Pergamum, Satan was sneaking in 
immorality mixed with idolatry. See, it was the backdoor approach that was taking place and Jesus is telling him there's something going on at the house of God and you're not completely aware of it. There's something going on subtly that needs to be addressed. Balaam is coming in the back door. The church at Pergamum was slumping and slumbering towards worldliness. We ourselves must be vigilant and clear concerning sexual sin and idolatry. We need to be crystal clear about these things. That's exactly what's being addressed here. That is the sin of Balaam, sensuality and idolatry. If we don't, we'll fall under the same condemnation of Jesus. Have you ever seen a day in which we live where where it is so sexually saturated and perverted in the way that sex is paraded and, and went into everything? Every kind of imaginal LGBTQ, all the long plus list, all the way down of every connotation of sexual immorality is plastered and paraded all over the news. Everywhere it seems. It seems that American society has become nothing but sexual impulses. And if we're not careful, the influence of that can make its way into their church. What does the marketing people say? Sex sales. And it always does. Now we like to think it's pervasive today, and it is, but the reality, it's always been that way. Sex has always been something that Satan uses to destroy his church, to destroy and tear down people. You think about David. How did David fall? It started with looking at something from a rooftop that he should have never been looking at. Here we see uh, that sexual immorality finds its way subtly into the church. That's how he takes. Uh, that's how he takes ministries and trashes them and throws them away because of sensual lust that led to idolatry. That's what's happening here, at Pergamum. If we do not blatantly and plainly take a stand that says sex outside of marriage in all of its variations, in all of its connotations, is a sin, we will be in the same boat. These purveyors of such wicked teachings were unashamedly promoting sinful acts of sensuality and idol worship. If you're not purposed, to guard against idolatry, the love of money, power, position, possessions, and the sins of idolatry, we could be allowing the enemy through the back door. This is not isolated to sex, but at the same time, it's part of idolatry as well. Here, that is clearly addressed. This church had some serious problems in its dark corners that needed to be addressed. If we're not purposeful and clear about sins like pornography, homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, all these sexual sins, we will endanger this church of falling prey to the attack that was plaguing Pergamum. I'm telling you, sin has a way of getting its tentacles into every area of our lives. Just like a vine. A tender vine, so small, green-leafed, Year after year, it doesn't seem like it can damage anything. But over time, a vine can encircle a tree and eventually choke the life out of another plant. 
Sin is like that deadly vine that if allowed to linger and linger can put a chokehold on our spiritual lives and by that our church as a whole. Notice second all the lessons of the doctrine of Balaam but also the license of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, you remember the church at Ephesus, we talked about the Nicolaitans there. And Ephesus, if we can go back, we can remember that Ephesus hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here he says in verse number 6, Yet this I have, uh, yet this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Ephesus was against that, but here at Pergamum, so also, verse 15, some of you hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Whereas the church at Ephesus were saying no to that teaching, the church of Pergamum in its dark corners at the back door were taking in that teaching. Now what is that teaching? Oh, I told you a little bit about it early on, but the word Nicolaitans means to rule the people. Early Christian writings indicate that this doctrine held that certain leaders had truth that was over and above the Word of God. And that these teachers were going about spreading a doctrine that suggested since all sins are forgiven, that there is no reason to separate oneself from any practice that brought pleasure to the body. So imagine this. These teachers are going away around and maybe they're in... Uh, Maybe they're in a little coffee gathering at a table at a fellowship and they're sitting there talking about the Bible and maybe they get in and around the subjects of intimacy and, and, and this Nicolaitan will say, well, you know, if you put the Scripture and harmonize it together, you know, you can kind of see that, you know, everything that is created in us is God given. We have the stamp of God upon us. We have desires that are natural and want to be acted upon. And yes, yes, we are sinners, but in Jesus, all of our sins have been forgiven. And there is a separation. Our souls are saved. We're seated in the heavenlies and our bodies, well, these old bodies are going to go into the ground. So we can make the deduction since all sin has been forgiven and and our souls is what's important and maybe, maybe we can kind of do whatever we want to with the body. Whatever feels good, whatever whatever attractions and urges that are there with the body, then we're a creation of God. Therefore, we should kind kind of cater to them, go down that path together. You see the subtle teaching of the Nicolaitans? Paul addressed it. We should not make forgiveness a sin or make a, what is it? Uh, make a, a mockery of the grace of God. It's not, we are not saved to live licentiously. God demands, a, a, a God c- clearly in His epistles, He calls us to live holy lives. We're never going to be perfect, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, we are to adhere to God's Word, to deny the flesh, cleanse yourselves, cleanse your hands, And purify yourselves, Paul wrote, I believe, in Galatians. But they would twist God's Word to to make it to say something that it didn't. We see the same thing today in so many so-called churches that attempt to legitimize sin, such as homosexuality and even divorce, if we have not 
I've got a word, I've got something over and above God's word. You know, you know that word of faith movement. I, I, woo, I, I got something from the Lord and, and it's going to be on par with Scripture and they make some sort of prophecy. Then, then you have those highbrowed Nicolaitans that, uh, that, that, that strain and, 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 and only see passages they want to see passages and, and, and try to mischaracterize Jesus as someone that would never, uh, that would never condemn sin, that, that would always promote and, and, and bless whatever chaos that we want to embrace in this life. There's a Nicolaitans. You ain't got nothing to worry about. Hey, we're all forgiven. It's that universal Unitarian type of thing. Jesus died on the cross for all sins. Therefore, all sins have been forgiven. Therefore, live as you please. Do what you want. Then there's a Nicolaitan on the other side that will, that will take God's Word and will make it say more things than are what's there. They will put special boundaries upon special boundaries upon special boundaries and choke whatever spiritual liberty that we have in Jesus Christ and basically put us back under the law. You see, I'm in that tension. I'm in that tension right now. I got friends. I got friends that so that are so getting so close to that far end of almost license. They never talk about Jesus flipping tables. They never talk about, about Jesus coming. We're going to find out in a second. Jesus is coming towards this church with a sword. With a sword of His mouth open. Not directed towards Satan, but toward the church. They don't talk about a Jesus like that. They don't talk about a Jesus that flips tables, that calls people snakes, and that condemns sin clearly, publicly. And at the same time, there is, there is a hard line, there is a hard line group that I used to be associated with that basically makes a new law in which it's so confining. There's no liberty. There's no grace. Oh, they may say it, but at the same time, if you fall upon that grace, then you are looked down upon. You are, you are gossiped about. You are condemned. There's a, there's a road in which we can avoid the teaching of these Nicolaitans who want to rule over the people. All of them want to take rule over the people. My question to you is I wonder if Jesus has some things against us. Some things that have crept in the back door. Have you become lax in what you parade in front of your eyes? What is acceptable to hear? What is brought in and, and toyed with and, and maybe excused in our lives? Our media, our entertainment, what we put in front, what our minds feast on and what we choose to put on our body and how we present ourselves uh, to this world. I question sometimes 
we give, do we have we let things in through the back door that 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 could introduce this this sensual doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Well, we do we sweep things under the rug? Well, it's okay, you know. Uh, all, all sins have been forgiven, you know. Why? I mean, why not? I, I just, Lord Jesus, forgive me. That's making a mockery of the grace of God. I had a preacher years ago. It talked about along these lines. And, uh, you know, if, if you were out hunting and you, you saw something in the woods you thought was a deer and you aimed that gun at, that, at what you couldn't, couldn't actually see, but you saw it moving, you pulled that trigger and it killed blood. The blast happened, blood came out, but it wasn't an animal. It was your dearest friend, your son, your brother. How would you feel about that weapon? You'd want that weapon as far away as from you as possible. Listen, when it comes to Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sin, we should not embrace and love up and hug up to sin. Oh, because grace covers it all. No, we shouldn't want to have anything to do with that. Don't yield ye your members to unrighteousness, Paul says in the book of Romans. Don't yield your members to unrighteousness. Yield them to righteousness. Here we see uh, this, uh, this, ch- this teaching of the Nicolaitans. Don't be fooled. Don't let it in the back door. Thirdly and lastly, the satanic conflict, their subtle compromise, also their Savior's correction. When I was reflecting on, look at, look at verse number, number seven, 16. Therefore repent. Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. You ever seen that book, Jesus is calling? Gives all these kind of affirmations here. Jesus is calling. Repent. Turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, I was reflecting on the, this passage and I was thinking about the book of Joshua years ago. Went verse by verse through the book of Joshua. One of the, one of the best, one of the most helpful series I've ever done through the book of Joshua. But there's that scene right before they go into Jericho as Joshua's planning on how he's going to take Jericho. You remember that person meets him out there in, the, in a desolate place and he's got a sword drawn. And, uh, and uh, he asks, are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel says, nay, but I come as the, as the messenger of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. And what he's basically saying is, I'm not for you. I'm not against you. I've come to take over. He come with a sword drawn to lead God's people in this attack. I see Jesus basically saying the same thing. With a sword drawn. Repent. I've arrived on the scene. I have come to take over. With a sword in His hand. Notice first of all, we see His demand of repentance. In verse number number, uh, 12, He talks about that sword. Verse number 16, he said, he, he told them, I said, therefore repent. Jesus does not beat around the bush. He does not give a little quid pro quos or quid provisos. Well, if you do this, I'll do that. If you do this, I... no, he says, repent. He said, repent. He said, change direction. Do an about face. Plug the back door where the Nicolaitans are coming in, uh, where, where Balaam, Balaam is setting a stumbling block. Block the back door. I don't care if you're fighting the devil tooth and nail. 
tooth and nail on the outside, in the public, the back door in your living room, the back door through your phone needs to be plugged as well. You know a sword can have two, two meanings. The sword is an offensive weapon and to the enemy it's a threat of life. A threat to their life. Imagine if you're, you're standing behind someone with a sword then that sword represents protection and defense. If you're in front of somebody with a sword, that sword is a threat to life. It's a threat of offense and danger. This sword of Jesus that was so comforting at the beginning, when He's fending off Satan, when He's helping this church, all of a sudden becomes discomforting when Jesus at the end of this letter starts to turn around. He was out here fighting as though He's fighting Satan at the beginning of the letter. You can see that. And then all of a sudden He turns around and starts aiming that sword at the church. I mean, just read it. That's what happens. That's what's there. Jesus that was so comforting has now become discomforting to this church. Please keep in mind that this same sword... The sword of his mouth was the sword that laid waste to all the armies of the earth in Revelation 19. You read Revelation 19, he comes from heaven on a white horse, many crowns on his head, king of kings, lord of lords, written on his thigh. He comes down and doesn't draw a sword, but opens his mouth and wipes out the armies of the nations, the armies of the world. Here he's telling the church at Pergamum, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for them in that church. This is, this is not something to be toyed with. It's serious business. Jesus can well discern the wheat from the chaff in this church. He knows them that are His and He knows them that are not. The call to every one of us is to repent and trust Jesus Christ. Repent of our sin. Plug the holes. Plug the back doors. Don't let the devil through, through the back door passages. Fight Him on the front and also fight Him in, that, in those secret places. Repent and believe on Christ today. Also, this is a declaration of reward. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hey, if you can hear what I'm saying, if you can hear the Spirit of God, obey. Listen to what He has to say. And notice, He said there's a reward. He said to him, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus is basically saying those that are church at Pergamum, if you'll not only fight the good fight by my name on the front and plug the holes and put out the Balaams and put out the Nicolaitans and get that out of the church, there's a reward on the other side. And that reward is the hidden manna. Now, the hidden manna is an Old Testament uh, thing in the, in the children of Israel and they're out in the desert, they don't have any food and God gives them food by, by manna. Every night it'd fall down. He, uh, he said it was, it was small like a coriander seed, that it, was, uh, that it was small, that it was sweet to the taste. I can't get it out of my head that, that uh, manna, small, honey, like, tastes like honey to the sweet to the taste. That was Krispy Kreme donut holes. That's exactly what manna was. Krispy Kreme donut holes. But anyway, I digress. 
And he said he gave them that all through the world. Forty years, they're eating manna every day. Krispy Kreme donut holes are falling from the sky every day. What a life. What a life. They might have rolled into the new promised land, but what a life. What a life. But during that time, when they created the Ark of the Covenant, remember he said hidden manna. Not just manna, hidden manna. When the Ark of the Covenant was created, Moses put three things inside that Ark of the Covenant. What did he put? He put the, the budding rod of Aaron. Do you remember the story about the, the, all of the people that would have been the high priest? They cut, they cut a rod and then they laid them out. And after so many days, whatever rod budded being cut off, it would be a miracle. That budded rod, whosoever it was, would be the high priest. That was Aaron's budding rod. you remember that story? That's how Aaron became the high priest. And that, that, that stick, that budding rod was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. It means new life. Then, what was also placed in the Ark of the Covenant was, was also the broken commandments. Remember Moses come down, he saw all of them dancing around the brazen serpent, and he dashed that broken law on the ground. All those broken pieces were put down the Ark of the Covenant. And last of all, what was placed in there was a bowl of this manna. We could actually say this was the hidden manna. Deep down inside. In the New Testament context, what is, who is the manna? It is Jesus Christ Himself. Who represents the budding rod of Aaron? It is He who was raised from the grave. Who is the keeper? Who is the holder of the broken law? It is none other than Jesus Christ. I believe our author here is saying, I will give you a reward, and that reward is me. <laughs> it is me. I'll draw near you, church. You plug those holes. You come thirsting after me. You hang on to my name and purify yourselves. You come after me. I'll give you the secret. I'll give you myself. I'll give you my life. Then he mentioned a white stone. White stone. Carrie, you remember when Brother Ken preached on that white stone? Man, I bet it was what? Two, uh, two, oh gosh, it must have been 2000, uh, two, 1999. My pastor preached a message on the white stone. We about clawed the building. I the same thing. We about clawed the building down. And oh man, it was, it was crazy. Everybody biting each other on the ankles, waving flags. I mean, it was unbelievable. He preached on this white stone. The white stone has so many meanings in that Greek culture. I'm not going to preach the whole message, but I, I will tell you this, that the, the white stone means an innocent verdict. Sometimes they didn't know what to choose as far as a judgment in the court of law, so they'd put a black stone and a white stone in a bag and have somebody put their hand in there and pull out the stone, and the stone that came out was the judgment. The white stone was innocent and pronounced innocent. Thank God in Jesus Christ, I've got an innocent declaration, justified, forgiven of sins. The white stone was also a proof of liberation of a slave. Whenever a slave had worked off its, its uh, whenever a slave had worked off its debt or had been freed by its master, he'd be given a special stone. And on that stone would be identifier saying that they've been set free. They're no longer a slave. So that some Roman guard may look at somebody, hey, you look like a slave. Did you escape from somebody? He'd say, no, I got a white stone. I've been set at liberty. I've been freed. Thank God in Jesus Christ. I've been given a white stone of freedom in Him. I'm no longer under the bondage of Satan, condemned by the law, but I've been given freedom in Jesus Christ. 
In the business world, it was a badge of authority. I've been shot with the preparation of the gospel. I've been clothed in that code of the Father of forgiving my sins. I've had the ring of authority placed on me by Jesus Christ. I'm the unworthy son that God called from the far field. It was also given to the winner of a torch race, a relay race. And as they come to that finish line, not only would they be given a laurel, a crown upon their head, but they would be given a stone of victory. I have victory in Jesus Christ. Oh, my pastor, i never forget. He brought a white stone in church and all through the message, just throwing it up, catching that stone. Boy, I wish I had one this morning. I've been given the victory in Christ Jesus. I am more than a conqueror to Him in Christ, to in Christ Jesus. But last of all, I believe this is what Jesus is talking about. I believe it's referring to the invitation at a table. Back in those days, if they had a big banquet, instead of little placards with your name on it where you're supposed to sit, they would put a white stone and they would put your name on that white stone and tell you you had a seat at the table. You know, all these Christians at Pergamum living next to hell, every guild, every professional organization, every community event wouldn't have anything to do with them. It's like they never got to sit at a table. Jesus says, hey, if you overcome, if you listen to my voice and repent, I'll invite you to the table. I'll have a, invite you to the table. All this, also this part, a name that no one knows, you know what that's like. I bet, I bet you husbands and wives, y'all got little secret names. Y'all don't tell everybody your secret name. I'm not going to tell you mine that Carrie calls me. Don't ever look at her phone. You'll find out. <laughs> it's on, my, it's on my, uh, uh, my contact. Hey, listen, we all got little secret names for each other. Man, this is a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of closeness. With you. I, I, listen, I, I know we have forgiveness of sin. There's certain liberties. But have you noticed when you let sin start creeping in your life, how distant Jesus seems to be? You're not that close anymore. You don't sense His presence anymore. This is a clear indication. Hey, plug the holes. Get it out. Get rid of that false teaching. Get rid of it out of your lives. Get it out of your church. Because if you do, there's a special place of intimacy. Jesus Christ. Going back to our story by that author. Uh, remember the story of Wolf, the Saxon? How he attacked that castle and he took it over. But the Welsh people, they knew a back door. And they, they were going to come through that back door. Wolf knew that, Wolf the Saxon knew that there was something like that going on. And so they, they looked all over the basement down inside the depths of that castle. And sure enough, that morning on the second day when those welts started making their way into the castle one by one, as soon as they turned the corner, gone, 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 gone. Wolf knew exactly where they'd come in and took them out. Listen. We, we're not ignorant of the devices of Satan. We know where he tries to make his way into our life. Cut it off. Don't play with sin. Don't toy with it. Cut it off. Get it out. We want God to use this place. We want Him to fill it home. We want to, when we come into these doors, we want to have the manna. We want to experience Jesus Christ. We want to see His resurrected presence. If we're going to have that, then we've got to close off those back doors, just like Pergamum needed to do. Final thought. While we are vigilant to fend off the frontal assaults of Satan, 
Let us guard against the subtle temptations that seek a foothold into our lives by holding fast to Jesus Christ. That's the element. Listen, I I told you what's wrong. Here's what. I told you what's wrong. You need to plug the holes. But here's the problem. A lot of preachers don't tell you how to plug the holes. How do you plug the holes? Get in this book. Draw nigh to me and I'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands. Come come closer to Jesus. Draw nigh to Him. What a chastening word to my heart I needed. Draw nigh to Him. Some of us are drifting away like Peter on that boat in John 21. We're We're going back into an old life. Hey, as soon as we see Jesus on the beach, we need to be diving in and swimming our way back to Jesus. Maybe this message is Jesus saying from the shore, Hey, you caught any fish? Have you known my presence lately? If you haven't, come on back. Come on back. Jump out of the boat and make your way back to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye. Let's all stand. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Here's the opportunity for God to speak to your heart. If God is dealing with you about something that has crept in, something 15 years ago that you wouldn't let in your life, that you wouldn't have let cross your path, occupy your mind, It's time to deal with it. I don't want Jesus coming with a sword after us. You deal deal with God this morning. Don't miss God. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You. Thank You for the Lord Jesus. God, I pray You'd speak to hearts. Let us confess and let us repent. Lord, I repent. I'm so sorry. I have let things inroad in my life. My heart is cooled. My affections drawn low. My love for Your Word waned. Oh God, let me cleave to the name of Jesus once again and draw me close to me. God, do something for me that I cannot do for myself. Invade my life with Your presence once again. Oh God, come. Come. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.